Before we start, John, it's December. This is Discount December. We're going to give 10% discount on Patreon. And what you get for following us on Patreon is three things. Ad-free podcasts twice a week. You get two macroeconomic courses, not just one, two free. And also from January, I'm going to be answering questions once a fortnight. We're going to have an online macro session. And if you want to go up a level with us, you get a 10% discount for signing up on Patreon right now in December. Patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. Hope all is well. I think we're all probably kind of reeling with the news of this South African variant because it completely changes the perception of what the future, particularly the near future, is going to be. John, how are you? I don't, don't, I don't, I don't need to stand like all down, but man, look at the face. And you, you see the face in John when I'm going on about this. I was trying to, I, was, I had my broadcast head on, which is what I call like square head, TV head, right? It's like, read the thing. And John's looking at me just going, oh, oh no. This no, time last week, yeah, we were at the gig. Absolutely. We were doing our thing and now but, South African variants. But to me, it feels like we've been crawling to this kind of finish line. We're almost there. We're almost there. And then up pops another variant. Yeah. Which, you know, and actually it is the second, I'm right in thinking it's the second yeah, you variant. Yeah, you were saying that to me. I think you're South right. Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, I, think, I think you are right. I, I'm not too sure, but I mean, we will we will chat about this in a little bit more detail. But yeah. I mean, it's, it's clear because you see stock markets have collapsed. Not collapsed. Stock markets are down a lot. The impact of this is not just more lockdowns, but no, it's the, and the, the financial markets and economically it's... Well, I'll tell you what I want to do. This podcast, I want to talk about movement, right? Right. I want to talk about COVID is a movement story. And I also want to talk about the tragedy in the channel yeah. and migration. Oh, yeah. Who is moving? Why? What should we do about it? Okay. The, the history of humanity is movement. So I want to talk about that you can't get away from it. Humans don't like to be stuck. It's really interesting. The reason we hate lockdown is because we like to move. Yeah. So if you can understand why humans hate lockdown, you can clearly understand why we move because that's what humans want to do. Yeah. And of course, with movement come diseases because obviously we are the carriers of the disease, yeah. number one, but also with movement come great ideas, come great opportunities. Yeah. So you have to deal with this whole complex idea of the migration of humanity, because that is our story. That's the first thing. It's like a cappuccino in a glass cup and you have the coffee Where? 
and you Where throw in going? the milk. Where is he going? You throw in the milk and it mixes. And all that is, as you say, the ideas, the... The opportunities, the new thinking, the new relationships, the new genes. And, yeah. And the new diseases. And the new diseases. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so, for example, if you look back at all the huge diseases, right, the, if you take the Justinian plague, yeah. 600, 500, 600 AD around then, right? The black, the bubonic plague. Yeah. All incidences of outbreaks of plague have also been coincident with great times of evolution. So if you think of the of the Justinian plague, think the Augustinian plague before that, right? Justinian, you're talking about the Roman Empire, which was stretching from Scotland to Babylon. And all the time people were moving around and yeah. they were moving, bringing money, bringing products, but bringing diseases. Yeah. You think of the Black Death, it starts in Crimea with Genovese traders trading in pelts and furs with Mongol traders from the steppe. Yeah. And they bring it here. And yeah. indeed the conquistadors arriving in. That's in... the great story. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the horrendous story. The conquistadors arriving and bringing smallpox. Yeah. And decimating. And the common cold as cold, well. Cold, the flu. I'll tell you, there was a great, I read a fantastic book. I'm trying to remember what it was about when the Spaniards in Mexico heard about Native American tribes in the Mississippi Delta. Mm. And these Native American tribes were trading, again, in furs with French and Spaniards who had just arrived in the Caribbean. And when the Spaniards decided to come up from Mexico up through Texas to find these people going inland, mm. what they found were all these abandoned villages. And what had happened, now this is the amazing thing, was the plague had got the Indians quicker than they could. So the plague had been given to the Indians, the flu, smallpox, yeah. these sort of things, right? When the Indian traders went down the Mississippi to what is now New Orleans to trade pelts, think about this, with the Spaniards and French. The Spaniards and French traders gave them the flu. Those traders went back to their villages and they weren't even villages, they were big settlements. Yes, yeah, yeah. And when the Spaniards arrived, all the Indians were dead because the flu travels quicker than people. Wow, and that's amazing. the crazy yeah. thing, right? So we're talking a matter of months yeah, before yeah. it took them to go overland from Mexico because they'd heard, listen, there's, there's, there's riches over there. And this is the same thing, you know? So this podcast will be about movement, about migration, but it's also going to be about the new variant, which again will be a function of movement. Yeah. And now you ask me, and of course, what we forget is that the disease, COVID and its various variants, enlists us to transport it. Yeah, we we yeah, forget yeah. that, that the disease is actually using us. It's kind of enlisting us to yeah. do its dirty work, which is why it actually, if you imagine, you know, when we say you cough and you spread COVID, well, it's actually that COVID has figured out that coughing is our mechanism which will project it onto the next person. Yeah. So in a way, it's actually enlisted our physical way of displaying a disease, like sneezing and coughing. They're the disease's way of enlisting our body to project it to the next body. Think about it. Yeah. Like it's a nature really, it's is a, a beautiful thing. It's our thing of evolution, John. Yeah. It's the whole, it is, nature is an amazing thing. But also, like, not only is it going to have 
you know, there's t- more talk of restrictions and lockdowns and yada, 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 drives you nuts. But it also has a huge economic effect. A new, a new economic effect. A new effect. economic effect. So what we've seen over the tail end of last week, and it's going to go into this week, is a huge correction in financial markets. Stock yeah. markets have fallen. Correction. I love well, that word. I know you're right, actually. That's, that's a wanky <laughs> word. Sorry. Uh, prices of things have fallen, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the wankometer, <laughs> bing, bing, bing. <laughs> okay, right. Uh, and why is that? The Three reasons, right? One is probably the most important thing in finance is not the actual event, but how the actual event that happens differs for what you were expecting, right? So mm. this is the interesting. So what had happened was that the vast majority of investors and brokers and those said, look, things are getting better. Savings ratios are high, but they are falling. Consumption is rising. The vaccines are working. Yes, we're getting a spike, yep. but in general, they are working. The supply chain coagulations we talked about, those things are all going to uh, come out in the wash. The economies are going to recover very, very strongly next year and the year after. So that was the baseline case, Right. And when that's your baseline case and you are shocked by a new variant, suddenly all the optimism that's built into that baseline case turns to pessimism. So had your baseline case been, look, I'm not too sure about this and there could be a new variant and let's just hold our horses and let's be mellow, right? If that had been the baseline case and then you get the shock, say, okay, right? Mm. But when you're actually thinking blue skies and the, the day turns out to be piss and rain, then you're really depressed. Yeah. Imagine like yeah. people in the communion, right? There's nothing worse than Irish people's faces, right? <laughs> when the bouncy castle is sodden, right? <laughs> do you remember the bouncy castles? Yeah, right. I right. Do. So I do. there's nothing worse than you, the communion morning, you, you get up, right? The man with the bouncy castle arrives. It's blue skies. It's looking okay. But there's a sort of a chill sort of yeah. late April, early May wind, Right. And then by the afternoon, there's a biblical yeah. deluge. And the, I, I always remember this because do you know what happened in our house about Bensley Castles? I tell you this, right? Because our kids aren't baptized and because obviously Shan doesn't do the Catholic thing, right? Yeah. She'd never heard of communions. I will actually talk about the North in a second. Right. Shan, Shan was unaware because she was brought up in Belfast, yeah. in the part of Belfast. They don't have communions. So she didn't realize this, but both our kids were born in May. And both our kids aren't baptized, so they weren't making communions either. And they, right. went, they went to Church of Ireland school. So yeah, they weren't yeah. making... So the funny thing... So Shan rings up and she comes up to me. She goes, what's the story? She said, uh, I couldn't get a bouncy castle for the kid's birthday. I said, why not? She goes, what's this communion thing? <laughs> I said, so... <laughs> So our kids got the shittiest bouncy castles <laughs> once they were left. Because they'd all, the communion had taken them off. It was just a, a little blow-up bed they had exactly. to bounce on. And you see all the poor little proddy kids with their crap bouncy castle. And next door, all the Catholics with these big majestic castles, like Disney castles. Turrets the whole and lot. money flying all over the place. It was like money... <laughs> I remember Lucy came into Shan one time when she's about eight. She's really, really big face in her. She goes, Mum, I want to be a Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> 
chances. Why, darling? Because they've got all the money. <laughs> they've got fancy castle. Because Harrow Road was full of Catholic kids <laughs> whose grannies were giving them 300 quid and our poor proddy kids hadn't any money. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, I was speaking of the North. You were up there during <laughs> during the week. I should have told that story. The United Ireland has played out in the McWilliams back garden. It was a fight over crappy bouncy castles. <laughs> um, I was okay. Serious, serious. I was doing something really fascinating. I was <laughs> given a speech at a lunch organised by this extraordinary movement called Ireland's Future yeah. in the Crown Plaza Hotel in Belfast. There was about 350 people. All masked up and distancing. All masked up. Not that distant, but masked right. up, because the North is different. Yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. they're under a kind of UK sort of let, let it rip, sorry, yeah, yeah. UK <laughs> let it rip approach to COVID, okay? But anyway, on the future of the island, the future, the economic future of the island, and what was fascinating about it wasn't all Republicans or nationalists. There was loads of unionists, not politicians, civic unionists, so unionist business people. Right. The Alliance Party members. Lots of people are thinking, okay, we know what is baked in in the numbers. When I say baked in, if you look at the census, right, what is clear is that the nationalists will be in an increasing majority every single year. Yeah. And at some stage, that is going to tip over into a majority. But more, more importantly, it means the People in the middle, at every stage, the unionists will have to convince more and more people to believe in the status quo. And the nationalists will have to convince more and more people to believe in a different future. Mm. And the way to look at that is the UK census. They did their census last year. We don't have what they call the granular data. That'll take a couple of months more to right. come. But we have the top line numbers. And the top line numbers in the north are pretty much what you expect. They're half and half, right? Mm. Okay, nationalist, unionist, Protestant, Catholic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm using Protestant Catholic as a, not in, not in a bouncy castle way, <laughs> right? But in a, because I feel terribly upset about her. I can just see that graph and it should be just bouncy castles. On bouncy castles and lots of money. Yeah, lots on the Catholic side and no bouncy castles. Yeah, and blow up beds on the other one. No, no bouncy castles and sponge cake on the Protestant side. Okay. So anyway, but the, the, the data is the following. If you look in the UK census, they break down into cohorts of every five years. Mm. So basically they have the population of Northern Ireland, all of, all of the UK. We don't do this, but they do it. And I think it's very interesting. And let you get the religious split. And the population over 90, okay? So those people in Northern Ireland who are now over 90. So yeah. the people who were born just around partition, or just sure, the first yeah. generation after partition, the split between Protestant and Catholic is about 70%, 30%, right? So that's the sort of the, the Protestant majority, the six counties, Northern Ireland, yada, yada, yada. But then as you look, as you go down 70, 60, 50, all the way down, the Catholic population rises and rises and rises, and the Protestant population falls and falls and falls as a yeah. percentage of total. So you get now to the under 20s, so it's a big cohort, right? And the under 10s, and what you're looking at is the Protestant population, which was 70%, has halved to 34%. Wow. The Catholic population, which started in the late 20s, about 28%, has almost doubled to the late 40%, right? And therefore, the bit in the middle is the 20 25% undecided, and they're yeah. the people to play for. So what I'm saying is that what is baked into the debate in Northern Ireland, or in Ireland in general, 
is the nationalist block is much bigger than the Protestant block as you go down sure, the yeah. population, yeah. which means that as we go forward, the nationalist block will become the dominant one. Yeah. So this was going to change. So there's no point us in the South saying, oh, you know, the status quo. The facts on the ground are changing. And I, I think it's important for us to be part of that debate. So what I was talking about was how, how the economy plays out. And of course, in the Northern economy is a mess. I mean, we've, we've spoken about this a few times, is they keep missing a trick. You know, they have an advantage that they're not, they're not, not taking. Well, this is, the, this is the never miss the opportunity to miss yeah, an opportunity. Yeah. So I've always thought, I mean, it's not suggestive that, you know, Northern Irish Protestant population are Afrikaners or anything, but, you know, this F.W. Clerk who died a couple of yeah. weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've always wondered, is a, is a sort of a unionist de Clerc going to arrive who basically says, okay, I can see the way the demography is going. I can see the Northern economy is a mess in comparison to the Southern economy. Remember I did that TripAdvisor index. I tell you about that. I always like to get, to get obscure index that tells you what's actually happening yes. in the economy. Not like GDP figures and things, because that, that, that means nothing, right? Yeah. But I, I did a little survey. Two, two cities, one in Northern Ireland, one in the South, both dependent really on tourism, both very similar. One is Armagh, which is actually a very beautiful city. It's got mm. two cathedrals, got lots of Georgian buildings. You know, Jonathan Swift was the, the dean there. All this, it's got really history, okay, really right. historical place. Yeah. And Kilkenny, where I do Kilkenomics, right? Both of them broadly similar populations. Both of them, they've, Armagh's got a big literary festival, got a food festival. Like it markets itself as a place to go. Mm. I've and never been there. It's, it's really interesting. And Armagh County is beautiful. It's all mm. these undulating hills. It's got lots of gardens, lots of apples. If you like an apple, yeah. full of apples. <laughs> it's called the Orchard County. If you want to, these, <laughs> these are the things I know, John, the bizarre <laughs> things I know as I was confident. Anyway, TripAdvisor obviously lists all restaurants and does reviews in each town. It also gives you a little number as to how many reviews restaurants have been reviewed. In Kilkenny, there's 176 restaurants. Right. In Armagh, there's 41. Wow. So you can just see a totally different... And you did the survey before COVID. I did before <laughs> Now there's two restaurants in both places, right? Exactly. But I was contemplating this as I was going up in the train the other day. But my point is, it was a fascinating discussion in Belfast. It's called Ireland's Future. So, John, this is a debate we should be having. We have to be having. Here, the government, the permanent government, the civil servants have put their head in the sand and say it's not going to happen, right? Why are they doing that? Because there is a deep, deep-rooted aversion in the civil service, the Department of Finance, and obviously the Department of Defence, of course, mm. right, to even talking about this new Ireland. Yeah, because it's such a head wreck for them. But what the look, we know. But the Shinners are going to be in in the next election, pretty much. They they, they probably they might so, be kept out. It depends on how it all lies up. But yeah, they'll be but, they'll but be a, a good big chance. Power. Okay, yeah, there's a good yeah. chance. Yeah, and and they'll certainly put it on the agenda. Of course they will. And you know, the only thing is, the last time we had such an abdication of policy responsibility was during the Celtic Tiger, when people were saying, right. "Look, yeah, yeah, these yeah. banks are going to blow. This is not cool." You know, let's worry about them. Said, oh no, it'll be grand soft landing. Yeah. It's the same bullshit soft landing thinking that says this is going to go away on its own. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's not going to go away because this is people. This is demography. This is what's happened. So we've got to be involved. So I think, you know, what we'll do is we will talk about it maybe in a bit more detail. Yeah. But it's a, it's a fascinating thing. But right now, 
We'll talk about the North again. Now let's talk about something that I think probably shocked you as well. The migrant. What a People awful, drowning. In, you know, awful in, scene. I mean, it, like, it, this has been going on for years in the Med, but now it's come even closer it's in the, the channel. English Channel. Yeah. So let's, i tell you what we'll do is, let's you and I just do a bit of listening rather than talking. I know that's uncharacteristic. Yeah. <laughs> Going to go to London now. We've got a real expert, Marta Foresti, who's the right. executive director of ODI Europe, which is a leading think tank, UK-based think tank, on issues of migration, on issues of how do we design cities for human mobility, of development, of political economy, of reform, all these areas. They're sort of areas we, we talk about all the time. Yeah. Marta's kind of like one of the leading lights. And she's also, and I want to just get her opinion on this, she's a former senior policy advisor to the Italian Ministry for Finance. So she knows exactly what's right. going on in Italy with Draghi. Exactly. So let's go to London. Let's talk to Marta. Marta, how are you? I'm very well, David, and you? I'm in flying form. Now, Marta, I'm just going to give you an image from 100 years ago before we talk about migration, maybe 150-odd years ago, of Italian and Irish people at Ellis Island trying to get into the United States. And this is basically the 21st century equivalent of what happened to our people. This is the way I look at it. Would that be an accurate way of looking at it? It's very accurate. And uh, beyond that, um, it was us, um, David, is me and you, right? Irish and Italians. Uh, this is a story about all of us. And we need to really stop making it a story about them, about someone else. It's a story of humanity. It's a story of me and you. Exactly. And the other thing I've always thought is that the story of humanity, ever since humans went for a walk out of Africa about 200 years ago, is the story of movement. Humans move. We go to places, we're attracted to places, we're repelled by other places, we run away from other places, we're scared, we're ambitious, we want to transform ourselves. This is the story of humanity. Migration is humanity. Of course, migration is humanity. As you said, people move, they always have and always will. And one way to think about this is that I think we can all recognize that moving from a village or from the countryside to the city is something that most of us would consider as something that we have done or something that our friends have done, something our parents have done, something that is normal and that people do. Put a border in between the city and the village, and that's the problem that we're talking about. So here, the, what has become the problem is the border, not the movement. So people move, have always have and always will, and naturally people will move more because it is becoming easier to move from one place to another. So let's just be, you know, just begin by acknowledging that people move and people will continue to move because it will become like to be easier to go from one place to another. So let us talk, let us talk, Marta, about this tragedy in the channel in the last couple of days. Who were these people? Who are these people? Where are they coming from? And give me a scale of what's actually going on. But what is tragic, of course, of, of what happened and so many people died, um, it also means that we know so little about the people um, because these become the refugees, the migrants, the dead. In most movements that has happened in the last few years, and particularly those who do not have legal ways to go from one place to another and those who take it on boats, whether it is on the English Channel or across the Mediterranean Sea or not that many years ago across the agency from Turkey to Greece. 
who is on that boat is people. <laughs> and so is different people. There are certainly a number of people who are on those boats, or for that matter, at the back of those lorries, who are people who are fleeing prosecution conflict, those that are likely to have a case to apply for asylum and therefore become refugees. And then there are other people. There are people that might be running away from poverty. There are people that might be running away from social norms that prevent them from having fulfilling lives. So it's very likely that on those boats there are a mix of different yes. people. And I think that as much as it is probably very likely the case that on a number of those boats there are people who are entitled to asylum cases, and this is really important, the fact that there are human beings that come from different parts of the world that share aspirations for a better future is what we should all start with. And I'm not convinced that pinning down, you know, the exact case that individuals might have on those boats should take anything away from the humanity and the aspirations that everybody has. Now, tell me right now what this seems to have been de degenerated into is a row between Britain and France. That's, yes. what I'm, that's what I mean. Can you explain that to me? And can you also explain why many migrants also seem to be coming or wanting to come to England, which seems to be actually one of the more difficult places to get into, one of the more difficult places to land physically, obviously, but also legally it seems difficult. So explain that to me because I, I don't quite get it. So there are a number of dimensions to this. The first is, as you said, this row between France and, and Britain and why we are there, you know, that that has come about. And then the difficulty, as you said, of specifically reaching the British Isles. So people come to France and to mainland Europe, through, you know, in a variety of ways. And obviously, when people can cross physical borders, it's easier uh, than uh, obviously arriving by sea or with other means. And so... Many people who travel to Europe through different means in search for um, either to apply for asylum or looking for jobs and opportunities and often a mix of the two arrive in different places on foot or rather by, you know, by land. Um, and so what we see at this sort of on the English Channel end is, is a little bit the end of a long journey that often and happens through many borders. Think about people that travel from, for example, now from Afghanistan, inevitably. Yes and making their way to Europe through a number of borders and then arriving in France or Germany or other parts of mainland Europe. So why is there a row between France and the UK? The row is, as usual, the case within Europe, is who has the responsibility to process the applications of those who want to apply for asylum in different places. And here the problem is that while we have international law that determines the overall entitlement that people might have to apply for asylum, how people reach the destination of the country where they want to apply for asylum is what is hotly debated. In the UK in particular, you need to be on UK soil to apply for asylum in the country. At the moment, you can't walk into an embassy in another country and apply to asylum in the UK. And so this is the reason why people want to, you know, need to come physically to the UK. In practice, it has become harder over the last couple of years as a combination of Brexit obviously COVID and the fact that people are, you know, have fewer means to arrive in the country, say by plane and maybe overstay a tourist visa is become, you know, is for all of us is becoming harder to move. And also people used to, as we know, they used to board lorries from France or, or the Netherlands and come to the UK following some tragic deaths, particularly of 
some Vietnamese people a couple of years ago who were found dead at the back of a which, lorry. Which was an Irish people smuggling op- operation that exactly. people here have conveniently forgotten about. But the actual trucks left from Monaghan and from County Armagh and the people who were actually indicted and charged were all Irish citizens. Yes. Actually, thank you for reminding me, and it's through this demonstrates that this is hardly something that affects individual countries in isolation. So there is a connection between different countries. And so as those routes have closed down, either because of COVID or because there's been quite successful operations to try to limit the number of people who would come at the back of the lorries, you know, the route across the channel, a bit like we've seen across the Mediterranean Sea over the years, has become, you know, the next route up that people are trying to use in the sure. Of alternatives. So that's why we see this rise of people coming uh, through the English Channel is because other routes to come more safely or, you know, or uh, in different ways have closed down. So why people want to come to the UK? Largely for the same reason why I ended up coming to the UK. I could speak English. I had networks and contacts and people I knew, people sometimes are family. The UK in the European space is a quite vibrant labour market where it's actually pretty you know, it gives a lot of people a chance to find work and to uh, make a living. And of course, is an economy that, like others, is actually restarting after, or after, or rather, you know. During, during the middle of this thing, yeah. During yeah. the COVID pandemic. But if you look at most countries, you always see a direct relationship between an, eco- between an economy doing well and jobs being available for people in that economy and people wanting to come to do those jobs. The UK at the moment has a number of labour shortages in different sectors. And so people are attracted to come to the UK because there is work and there are opportunities. You know, so people... Sure. You know, yeah, so it's, it's the same story. It's the same story that Italians went to Germany in the 1960s and 1950s, 1960s. Spaniards went to France in the 1950s, 1960s. Irish people went to the UK in our hundreds of thousands all through the generations. It's the same story. It's not. It's no, no it's, different. It is the same story. And actually, to the credit of the UK, the country where I live, the other reason why people want to come to the UK and, pe- and particularly people want to apply for asylum in the UK is because the UK has a long history of being a country that has fulfilled its obligation and has received and has integrated people, you know, looking for asylum from, you know, from refugees of, you know, Jewish refugees in the Second World War to many others, people coming from the Balkans after the Balkans War. So the, the UK has a long history of being a country of refuge. Yeah. And it is so its credit in many ways that both for economic prospects, personal fulfilling of aspirations and well-being and the ability to be protected and given refuge and safety in a country that has an ability to do so. So that's why people want to come to the UK. In, in a way, that's why the, the tone of the Brexit debate has been quite shocking for many people because the UK tended not to have this profound in-your-face anti-immigration movement, which Germany ironically had, and we know ended up in an apocalyptic catastrophe because of that. And interestingly, this week, the new German government is so woke, I was just saying it could be made up by my kids. If they had actually sat down for a with a, a blank piece of paper and said, what sort of government are you going to have? Isn't it quite interesting that Germany's flipped completely? You've got this extraordinarily woke new government and part of its whole deal is going to be open to more migrants, not less. I actually think you're right. Germany is, is an extraordinary story. It's also it's, it's interesting when you have these you know, news headlines uh, with migration that are always catastrophic. It's always a crisis. It's always bad news, basically. 
and politically, you know, you always hear that, you know, with the with Brexit or whether it's happening with Poland and Belarus and many other situations where we are confronted with an impossible situation where nothing can be done because politically this is completely unviable. Now, dial back a few years, in fact, 2015, when Angela Merkel decided to welcome a million refugees. Uh, it wasn't easy. It, it didn't, you know, it wasn't a smooth ride. She, but, you know, interesting, she's then been accused or many commentators comment on how grave a political mistake that was and how that was the point of no return for her leadership, having misjudged the fact that the country was not necessarily behind her and particularly the other European allies were not ready to follow her and do the same. Fast forward yesterday, as you said, the, a new coalition government that comes after her. And by the way, she's been successful in power since 2015. And I was actually reading this morning that um, not only the, you know, the new government has very progressive policies on immigration and plans to do more and better and wants to welcome and actually, in, you know, um, attract more immigrants and recognizing that are need in the economy. But to my mind, very importantly, I was just reading this morning, business also welcomed the plans with our populations aging, Germany needs net immigration of 400,000 a year. And it seems the new government really understands this. This is hardcore economics. Yeah, no, it's a, it's it's a total argument. change. Comple it's a complete change. And it's an argument only a year ago, myself, many others, many economists would happily make because there is plenty of evidence to suggest that immigration is good for the economy. And we were always told this was a political you know, it was a political car crash and the message didn't work and it didn't, you know, it wasn't the way to go about it. Well, now you have the major, we say the leading European economy with a coalition government, which by definition requires some negotiations in a country where anti-immigrant sentiments have, you know, emerged like in many others from the far right, who is basically doing the thing that makes most sense and saying, we're getting older, you know, we have labor shortages also as a result of COVID, we need more immigrants. And to make it even more poignant, I a couple of uh, days ago was reading that Japan, of all places, is also considering relaxing immigration rules for fundamentally the same reasons. Now, Japan is one of the countries in the world that has had the most entrenched approaches to immigration and some of it, you know, the most, you know, cl close. No, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I, I've always said that the, the, one of the, the major dilemmas with Japan, if you look at its labor forces, they didn't like immigrants and they didn't like women yeah. working you know and if you if you shut out immigrants and you shut out half your population you're going to have problems can i ask just before we go in a former life you were an advisor to the italian government i just noticed that mario draghi has taken macron aside in the last 24 48 hours and said you know listen what i'm reckoning here is that fiscal policy in europe budgetary policy, all that sort of stuff, has to change, take into account climate change, the pandemic, etc. To what extent is Draghi actually leading Europe and the Italians are leading Europe in the new conversation in a way in which nobody really imagined? So, I mean, is, it, is, Draghi is an interesting character. Most economists I know really love him and have, you know, a lot of respect for him. From within Italy, the, the, the views sometimes are a bit more mixed. It is interesting. I mean, this alliance with Macron is important, especially if, and it looks possible, Macron will also win another term. Another thing that is interesting about Italy and France is that, of course, they both are countries that are at the forefront of some of this debate about the future trends of 
not just fiscal, you know, of migration in Europe, sure. and actually relate it to what you said about fiscal policies. In, in Italy, the data is particularly strong when it comes to, you know, a country that struggles to collect taxes. And actually, the migrant workforce makes a very significant contribution uh, to the fiscal balance, and not in, not in Italy only, in a number of other, in other countries. Now, one thing to really think about for the future is the role that European countries that are on the borders, are on the front line of the migration debate, what they can do and how countries like Germany, who are not so much of the, you know, today yeah. on the front line, can do to support it. Specifically, because there is something to contrast and is very visible on the eastern borders where you have countries like Poland, you know, that, you know, in alliance with Hungary that once was a lone voice and now is no longer are really pushing for much more of a hardcore approach to the protection of external borders of, of Europe. And Europe has a problem there because to maintain its internal borders open needs to find ways to manage its external borders. So I think with Draghi and with the right alliances and support from France and Germany in particular, Italy could play a more, a much more significant role in trying to make you know progress very much in the same direction it was seen in in Germany. So there is that potential. But actually looking at recent data that at ODI we will soon release about public attitudes and opinions that people have across Europe on immigration, it is important to remember that countries on the front line like Italy have more of a problem in terms of public perceptions and of course people's experience of of the arrivals of different, you know, of, of, of people on their shores or through their borders needs to be taken into account. So I've thought now for some time that what we need in, in Europe is a coalition of the willing because we cannot get a, an agreement across the 27 member states on a collective approach to uh, manage borders effective in ways that will make everyone happy, especially with the kind of political you know, priorities and leaning that we're seeing in some Eastern European countries. So it's very important that a pragmatic coalition of the willing, maybe now led by this new German government, hopefully once the presidential campaign is over with France, working closely and pragmatically with Italy and Spain and Portugal could really begin to make a difference in putting forward the progressive case for the need for immigration that Europe has following um, what we've seen happening in Germany in the last few days. Marta, listen, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you very much, David. It's my pleasure. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Do you know two things that struck me when Martha was talking there was one the irony of it all when their British supermarkets can't stack their shelves and yet there's people dying in the channel. I know. Trying to get over to stack those shelves. Yeah, to do anything, to just to work. Yeah. yeah. And then the other part of it was, which we didn't really touch on there, but maybe it's something we'll come back to as well, is how migrants are being weaponized, particularly in the Belarus-Polish border spat. Oh, I mean, Lukashenko is actually encouraging yeah. migrants to fly to Minsk. They're putting them on buses yeah, and they're encouraging them to take a risk. I actually thought that the Turks were, were bad enough a while ago when they threatened that last year. But Lukashenko is a, a, a step further, well, isn't he? Further. And then the interesting thing you think about the Turks, I was in a city, John, called Gaziantep. I did an event for... Syrian refugees. Whereabouts is that? Now, this is the fascinating thing. So a friend of mine asked me, would I go over and do do a gig for Syrian refugees raising money in Istanbul, which was then spent on these refugee camps uh, on the border of where Aleppo is. Mm, Okay? Yeah. So they call it Halap is the name. So it's funny when you don't read, so you're on a motorway and you see this sign, the Halap, and you don't realize that's Aleppo. And then all these... Refugee camps are on the border of Turkey and and Syria. And the main city that we flew into, like I took Lucy with me, and Mm. we we flew into, was a city called Gaziantep that I'd never heard of before. It's a city of four million people. Wow. Huge city, one of the oldest permanently inhabited places in the world. Really? Yeah, fascinating place. Is it nice though? Is it a is not it... particularly? No, right. not particularly. It's a, it's more of a I would what I call it. It's a city that feels like it's been through the ringer. It's been through the ringer, and it's kind of a modern Turkish city. It's also very religious, so right. it seems to me a little bit sort of oppressive socially, anyway. Which is my elegant way of saying I couldn't get a gargoyle. <laughs> 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 it's very Georgia city, in fairness. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but what they were saying was the Turks have taken in four million Syrian refugees. It's a lot. Four million. And they let them work. Yeah. So they just said, come on in. And I was talking to the Turks and they said, look, you know, the Syrians are working away. They're doing their thing. And they said, the amazing thing is we can't speak their language. So we're really different to them. And you forget that the Turks speak Even Turkish though they're, they're, they're they side this, by side. Yeah, they yeah. can't speak Arabic. Turks don't speak Arabic. And Arabs don't speak Turkish. Yeah. So he said, it's really weird. We're the same religion. We kind of physically look a bit the same. Yeah. With the same deep culture in terms of food and, and, and you know. Where, and where, where are most of those migrants going? Are they? they were, in Gaziantep, they were working mainly, they said there's loads of Syrians working in 
construction, working in retail, working trading. Right. Taxi but, but they are spread. What they're I mean spread is out all over spread, Turkey. They're spread yeah, out all over Turkey. I mean. yeah. So you have this very strange thing with Turkey. So the government projects one image, mm. right, to the West, which we think is the Turks are incredibly inhumane on the Greek islands and those areas with refugees. Yeah. And yet Erdogan wants to be seen as this great Ottoman empire, an emperor. Yeah. So he wants to be seen as the welcomer of Syrians. And uh, it's it's hard to know what really is the truth. Mm. It's hard to know what really is the truth. But when you're in Turkey, Istanbul is full of Syrian refugees and full of Syrian, very, very destitute Syrians, lots of Syrian beggars, lots of Syrian women with young children, babies, at traffic lights. I mean, it's it's you can really feel it. And the Turks say, I asked my Turkish mates and they said, yeah, there's really a lot of them here. When I was talking about Lebanon, there's, you know, two million of them in Lebanon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, Syria has been the biggest displacement of people from any country ever wow. in terms of the head of population, you know? Wow. And they're the sort, they're the people who ended up in the channel too, which is, yeah. but you know, what is despicable is the fact that people like Lukashenko weaponize and try to profit and from Putin. That's and not, Putin. Putin's and, and not to, innocent either. Yeah. And try to profit yeah. from the whole thing. But then if you go back and maybe we we'll leave it here, you know, the Gombean man in Irish history was the local who extracted money out of the really destitute peasants who were on their way to America. Always extracting mm. money. The Gombean man was the guy who sat between the Irish and the landlord classes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always a Gombean man everywhere, you know? So one thing about the Gombean man, you think he's gone. <laughs> he's all around. John, it's Crimbo. It is. Here's the sales pitch. You can get, can you imagine anything better than this? <laughs> you can get 12 months Patreon subscription to the Dave McQueen's podcast, which is two podcasts ad-free every week. You get two macroeconomic courses. The economic courses I give in Trinity, more or less, online. Which are humdingers. Which are humdingers, okay, which we actually won a prize. Indeed. We won a prize. Indeed. Swati Teacher of the Year. But we get all the reading lists. You know the reading lists I go on about? All the reading lists, the lecture notes, videos, the whole thing. And you get these, we're going to introduce this year, an online Q&A. Once a fortnight, I'm going to answer the questions that people have. This is all on Patreon. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Yeah, no, it will be really good. And it'll, it'll create a, a huge community of people. And this is all on Patreon. And you get a 10% discount if you sign up in December. So that's patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. And if you sign up now to Patreon, you get 12 months for the price of 11 months for an annual subscription. And or you can look at it by getting 10% off for the whole thing. And the key thing is it's not just the podcast. It's the learning, it's the community, it's the engagement. It's all together. We're going to go up a level yeah. in 2022. Do you know what as well? It's a bloody brilliant Christmas present. You're absolutely right. Right.